You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome again to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I have to give a shout-out to just the entire crew at GoMedia, uh, Bill Beachy, Brian Garvin, uh, Jeff Finley, Heather Sakai. I mean, they just really put on an amazing event with Weapons of Mass Creation Fest. Uh, the panel that I was on, uh, which was about race and culture and diversity in the creative community, that went extremely well. Uh, the auditorium was packed. We received a standing ovation at the end. Um, and I think people really enjoyed what we talked about. I know just looking at some of the comments, uh, people were really glad that this information was being sort of put out there in the open and that people were freely and openly talking about it. Uh, hugest thanks to my fellow panelists, Antonio Garcia, Luis Cabrera, Linda Ayala, Jacinda Walker, Donald Wooten, and our moderator, Angela Townsend. I think, you know, like I said before, people really walked away, not only inspired by the information that we shared, but with actionable steps that they can take right away to help increase diversity in the field. Um, it was an awesome event. Cleveland was just a really awesome city. Um, I met some awesome people like Aaron Anaker from Below the Fold, Damien Guest from Jack Prince, uh, Marshall Shorts with Creative Control Fest, Ryan and the crew from Teespring, uh, AJ Jimenez, Megan Cook. It was just all around just a really awesome time. Uh, so thanks again to Go Media for the opportunity and for the festival. Um, I highly, highly look forward to attending it again. Uh, Revision Path is brought to you by MailChimp, our favorite email service provider. We use it for our monthly newsletters, and it's just it's the easiest thing to use uh, for Revision Path. Uh, with drag-and-drop templates and helpful resource guides, anyone can get started with email marketing. Visit MailChimp.com today and sign up for a free account. Now let's get to this week's interview. I talked with Husami Oakley, a creative technology director in New York City. Here we go. Okay, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Husani Oakley. Uh, I am, I guess the title I use these days is creative technology director. I generally work in, in the advertising side of things, on the digital side specifically. And my, my role tends to be figuring out how to help brands tell stories and tell those stories to consumers through technology. So talk to me a little bit about, I guess, this intersection between creative and technology, because I think for designers and maybe for developers also, it's hard to see where those two really mesh well together. Yeah, you know, inside the advertising industry anyway, especially at sort of large, large style traditional shops, there seems to be a big divide between folks on the on the creative side and, and, and folks on the technology side. And those are, you know, really loose terms there. Consider the creative side being folks who are coming up with the, the, the underlying reason for, for telling a story and the folks on the tech side figuring out how to execute that story. And if you look at the, the history of advertising agencies and advertising in general, as the Internet grew in importance and, and as traditional agencies began to bring on teams to worry about execution, not just concepting and, and ideation, the execution mm -hmm. side was sort of considered production. It looks like shooting a TV commercial. You've got your, your copywriter and your art director, the very traditional agency team. They concept, they have a script, and it looks great. And then a separate production company is in charge of hiring a director, you know, booking a location, doing casting, and doing the, the sort of on-the-ground work of executing on that story. And as agencies begin to bring, bring more sort of digital and, and tech-focused talent in-house, I think an assumption was made that that was... It should be sort of structured in the same way. And my, my, my argument has always been we work in a different medium than, than, than television. And mm -hmm. you know, what works to, to make good work in one medium can, can't necessarily be assumed that it works in every medium. And um, that's sort of specifically on, on, on the advertising side. If, if you start looking at, at the product development or, or any other non-advertising area where, where there's you know, a group of creative slash design and a, and a group of, of technology slash code or, you know, the, the technical execution folks, there's the constant struggle between 
I'm a designer. I want this to look and function like X. And on the coding side, it's, you know, well, I'm the developer and I'm the one making this thing and it can't do X. It's got to have to be like Y. There's something nice about, about the struggle. There's something nice about one side pushing the other side to do the best work possible. But it, it can become a situation where there's resentment on both sides, where, you know, the, the, the folks on the design and creative side don't quite grasp that the folks on the tech side are, are just as invested in creation of a great idea as they are. And, and yeah. you know, and vice versa, the folks on the tech side sort of making the assumption that the creatives or the designers don't really know anything about how this stuff is implemented and they are the sole arbiter of what's possible technically and things, ideas tend, tend to peter out when it goes to one side or the other. So it's nice to kind of figure out how to make these two groups work together to get the best work out of both of them. Now, you call yourself a creative technology director and you've had a number of different director positions. Your first director position was at Flavor Pill, is that right? Uh, yeah, I was uh, co-founder and like, employee number three back in, wow, like 99, 2000. Tell us about that. So uh, I, I worked with, with a couple of guys at, at agency.com uh, back in the late 90s, which shows my age. Um, you know, <laughs> one, one of the first sort of advertising-ish groups that realized, hey, we can tell brand stories on the internet and, and it'll whatever that internet thing is, and it'll be hopefully just as effective, if not more effective, than, than telling those stories in, in, in TV. Anyway, I uh, ran into, into some guys from, from ABC.com after all of us left, and they started a company called NetSet Goods. And, you know, this is back in the dot-com era, so, you know, you have an idea for a business, you write to a two-page business plan, and you get, you know, a half a million dollar in VC funding, and then you're off to the races. Um, mm-hmm. As an aside, I feel like that's happening again right now, but that's... Another oh, totally. conversation. <laughs> probably, probably more than half a million, but totally. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And their startup, NetSet Goods, was, was one of the first pure e-commerce plays. And it, it was a – I always describe NetSet Goods as, as one of the products. So apparently for a period of time in the late 90s, young Japanese girls were, were painting the tips of their cigarettes to match the tips of their fingernails. That, that was a, a okay. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> that was a thing for, for a while there. So NetSet Goods was the kind of company that would have folks on the ground in Tokyo, you know, with ears to the ground, knowing that's happening, and then let's buy a crate of this nail polish and create a story around it and sell it on the website. Very sort of like Williamsburg here in Brooklyn, hipster style product stuff. And, I, you know, at the time it wasn't, no, no, one, no one was doing that. You, know, you, you could buy airline tickets on the internet in, in, you know, 98, 99, but you weren't really into sort of niche market product stuff. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, like, like many companies of the era, you know, money ran out. And as we, we, we sat, I sat with them as a, as a tech strategist and we tried to figure out, you know, is there a business after this business? Are there, are there things we can take, not, not just learnings, but actual things that can be monetized from the ashes of NetSet Goods and make into something. And, and the thing we, we landed on was an 800-person newsletter that was called the NetSet List at the time. And they would send out like lists of parties happening in New York, like DJ events and such. Nothing like spectacular, although it did fit the NetSet brand of this sort of smart urban hipster. And we realized, mm-hmm. hey, there, you know, there's, there, there's something here. At the time, Daily Candy was huge. You know, email newsletter, products targeting women, interesting things happening in, in various cities. And we thought, hey, we can take this 800-person mail list, and, and we created the flavor pill. The idea was, let's filter the best cultural events happening in, at the time, New York City, and summarize them in some way. So it was like a filtered timeout magazine. Okay. And then we called it Cultural Stimuli in, in New York City. And one, one of the underlying ideas was that you didn't actually have to go to any of the events that you saw in your weekly email. You could read the email and then know about them. So you could be at a party and you've got a glass of wine in your hand and you're like, I, I saw Irvine Welsh speak at, at, insert the small bookstore here, about train spotting. He gave such interesting stories about it. And you, you didn't go to the event, but you read about it in the flavor film. So it was sort of a, a, a cultural currency. If you, mm-hmm. um, and we tried to, you know, lean in on that, on that cultural currency side and at the same time figure out how technology could push that product a little bit. So 
you know, we developed an in-house CMS for creation of, of the newsletter every week. We, we had a custom-built email deployment system. And all, all of these things were, were built specifically for the type of content that, that, that we had. You know, one interesting example, so you've got this, this email newsletter, and it's split up into days. And then under each day, there are maybe three or four event listings. And remember, this is like 1999, early, early 2000. So you see an event listing you like, and you're like, hey, I want to send this to my friends. How do you do that? Well, you, you know, are you copying and pasting from that email into another email? Like, what are you doing? So, you know, it sounds so sort of silly and simple now, but a link inside that email to send to a friend, and you weren't sending the entire email to a friend, you were sending that specific event to a friend. And that, that tied into our, our CMS and, and, you know, it would hit the email deployment system and the person you sent it to would just get that event, just that snippet of HTML. And, you know, again, now that's like, well, duh, that's like not even table stakes, right? <laughs> but at the time, there was nobody putting that much emphasis on functionality inside an email marketing, an email newsletter, rather, like, like we were. So it was sort of fun to figure that stuff out on the fly. That kind of reminds me of, of what Thrillist is now, in a way. Thrillist and Urban Candy. They're sort of in that same, not Urban Candy, Urban Daddy. I got it confused with the other candy, but Urban Daddy and Thrillist kind of do that same thing where they'll send you an email or something. And it has, you know, a stuff that you probably would know about in the city, but you don't necessarily have to go to it or anything like that. Now, from Flavor Pill, you took a kind of an interesting detour into furniture. <laughs> Why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, that's... um. At the time, it felt like a complete departure, but when I look back on, on the rest of my experience, it kind of feels like it was almost a natural move. So, uh-huh. so uh, I ran technology, and that sounds a whole lot better than it was. When I say I ran technology at this company, it means that I was technology at, at this company. I ran myself. A furniture brand called De La Espada. Very high-end, like with price points that none of the actual employees could ever hope to afford. Um, <laughs> custom-made modernist, minimalist, solid wood furniture. It's sort of weird, but there were a couple of, I mean, there are two reasons why I, I latched onto this job and, and took it and, and enjoyed myself for a little while. You know, one, a focus on design in, in the product itself. This was certainly not Ikea, right? A whole lot of time was spent crafting whatever the physical equivalent of pixels are on any given piece of furniture. And there was something really mm-hmm. compelling about the craft equaling the design in, in, in the product development there. And secondly, the owners were, they wanted to figure out ways that technology could not just sort of push branding and marketing on the outside, but drive efficiencies on the inside. So our big project was called Project Apollo, which is, I mean, filled with hubris now that I, now that I think about it. <laughs> hey, we're, it's, like, it's like going to the moon. Well, we're going to call it Project Apollo. And at the time in, in, in the, the tech news, people were, were really excited about what like FedEx and UPS were doing with their internal technology uh, you know, in, in logistics. And being able to track every single part of your internal processes from sort of one interface was, was super interesting. And the brand was, was you know, nowhere near the, the, skies, the, the size and scale of, of a UPS or FedEx, obviously, um, Three stores, San Francisco, New York, and London, and headquartered in London, and a factory in Portugal. So we, we started figuring out two directions with the system that we built. One, how can we provide our customers with more of an insight into where their piece of furniture is at any given time? Right, You place an order in a store, and you're doing it in store because you're not dropping $15,000 for a sofa on the Internet. I mean, you're not doing it now. You certainly weren't doing it in, like, 2003 or whatever. Right. And, you know, the, 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 the process took a while. This, this was not we go to the warehouse and pull the sofa. It's like, all right, well, we've got to cut the wood that makes the frame of the sofa. We've got to get artisans and, and craftsmen to, to, to build this stuff. So it was sort of nice to have a system that could track each individual part of the creation of your piece of furniture and expose that out to the user, or to, to the consumer, rather. And that also gave us insight into how long things took. And we were able to, to, to look at those things and, and say, oh, well, to get this block of wood to step four, you know, we're wasting three days per step. How can we tighten that up and, and drive efficiencies in the, in the manufacturing process? And on the other side, how can we, in a high-end, high-net-worth individual as a consumer in that sort of area, how can we 
use technology to, to make us more knowledgeable about who these people were at, were as individuals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a person walks in the store, a salesperson's chatting with them, the person casually mentions that, you know, their, their wife's birthday is, is coming up in a couple of months. And then, you know, maybe they fill out a semi-catalog semi form in-store, in-person, just sort of in conversation. That salesperson then, when the person leaves the store, runs back to a terminal, hits up a, a Project Apollo, you know, clicks new customer lead, puts in the information for getting the, the catalog, but also says, oh, birthday coming in two months. It goes into a calendar system. So six weeks after that, the salesperson gets an automatic email that says, hey, John Smith, his wife's birthday is in two weeks. Send them flowers or sort of something like that. Figuring out ways with technology to improve customer relations, but on a one-to-one basis was perfect for the brand and the, the, you know, the type of consumer we had and was a pretty interesting technical challenge. And now from there, you also sort of still, I guess, stayed in the furniture industry, but doing more of the technology because you then founded your own furniture company. Yeah, I worked really closely with, with Ayla Spada's director of ops who became really close friends through the, when you're sitting in an office writing code late at night for months at a time, you, if, if you're not friends with the folks that, that are, you're around, it becomes a really painful experience. But, but mm-hmm. we, we became really close and the Ayla Spada ownership team suddenly got access to a, a fac- another factory in Portugal. And due to the setup of the factory and the type of wood that was available and that sort of thing, decided, hey, we should start a less ridiculously expensive line of furniture. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we approached them with, with the idea of, all right, that sounds awesome. Let us run it. Let's form a joint venture. And Husani will sort of run the tech side of things based on the systems and the learnings that, that we developed during the De La Spada core build of, of Project Apollo. And the, the other partner, the De La Spada's director of ops, but sort of figure out the sort of marketing and branding and sales and logistics sides of things and, and what kind of role from there. It was a complete departure from, I think, anything the larger brand was, was familiar with or even, frankly, comfortable with. I mean, mm-hmm. we did craziness like, we're not going to have a traditional retail location. We're going to rent a loft in Williamsburg, and we're going to fill it with our product. But it's going to look like an apartment. And it's going to be in an apartment building because zoning laws, ha! <laughs> Um, so you know we'd have people walk into into what we considered our showroom and they'd look at us like do you guys live here am i intruding am i on the wrong floor of this building it's like no come on in we want you to feel as if this this is what your apartment could look like you know we spent a lot of time figuring out how the brand itself would be communicated and and landed on because the price point was fairly i mean slightly higher end but but mid-range between sort of Ikea disposable style and very, very high-end De La Spada style. We tried mm-hmm. to make the brand very smart yet informal, you know, from how we express the brand visually and, and through copy and through our interaction with potential customers. Every brand interaction point sort of pushed that easygoing, urban, slightly sophisticated, but not too sophisticated, right? The, the target was you were in your second job. You might have just gotten married. Maybe you have a kid on the way. You're thinking about having a kid. You're, you're at the point where you're graduating out of buying Ikea furniture or you know, the crap you had in your dorm room, but you're not quite ready to spend $10,000 on a couch. So the big challenge was how do we, how do we form a brand that, that, that fit those, those requirements and at the same time have this big-ass technology that we developed work with, within those new brand requirements. So sort of hitting that, that yuppie crowd, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I got you. And now from there, you really, I guess, further went into the advertising industry because you've worked with, from what I remember, Euro RSCG, you've worked with EVB, and uh, the last big advertising gig that you had was with Wyden and Kennedy. Tell me a little bit about sort of what the experiences were with each of those companies. Yeah, you know, it's three different agencies, three different cultures, three like completely different experiences. Euro, which is now uh, called Havas Worldwide, and before it was Euro, it was, you know, some four dude, four white dude, last name, combination, agency style thing. They <laughs> changed <laughs> <laughs> it to Euro, which, you know, is, is ironic in and of itself, I suppose. <laughs> Euro, when I started, there was a, a separate digital group, completely separate from the, the, the larger 
traditional agency. And maybe six months in, there was a there was, we merged the two groups. So one large agency doing both traditional work and digital work. So working on clients like Volvo, ExxonMobil. Actually, those are the two the two biggies. Lots of time was spent on on, on both and Charles Schwab and and a, and a bunch of others. And the you know the the culture was very account driven advertising agency. So yes, while while the creative output is clearly important, it's still advertising. It's still an agency. There was a a little bit more of an emphasis on, well, we're also a business, guys. So you can't spend six months with your head in your clouds coming up with some amazing creative idea. Like, just got to get sold. And I wouldn't say we were breaking any digital, creative, or, or technological barriers. We weren't doing, like, oh, my God, who did that sort of work? But solid, solid brand work, who, the, the intention of which was for our clients to, to sell product. That's you know that was focus. We we ran the North American site for for Volvo cars, and it's great to have these sort of pie in the sky, wonderful storytelling things. But at the end of the day, you got to move your product, and we as an agency existed to help our client move the product, and that's kind of that's what the focus was, and 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 that that's sort of how the internal culture there worked. You know, compare that to EVB. Also, compare size, right? Euro big global agency at the time, maybe. 400, 500 people in the New York office. I moved out to San Francisco to work at EVB. Suddenly there's 70 people in one office. A complete, complete culture shift, not only size of agency, but type of client. New York versus San Francisco, which was a complete culture shock for me, being a Jersey suburb and New York kid. It was like, whoa, where am I? Wow. <laughs> um, the work and the culture at EVB, much different from, 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 from Euro. Focus on on digital work, almost exclusively, and how digital work can interact with TV work in, in some instances, but really a focus put on how do we make cool things that tell a brand story, but really engage a consumer in experience. You know, EVB is the shop that created Elf Yourself back in the day. I remember that. Yeah, and you know, it's a good example of like, you're interacting with the brand and you don't even realize it. You're just playing with something that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the work that we did was, was like that. One project that sticks out was for, for Levi's, um, Unbutton Your Beast. It's the sort of work that we'd never, we would never have gotten away with or even come up with at Euro. Uh, it was for Levi's. And there were sock puppets and crotches involved. <laughs> <laughs> But we launched, and a couple of days later, Jay Leno talked about it in his monologue, which had us all, like, jumping up and down, like, holy shit, we actually made something that a mass pop culture figure talks about on, on pseudo-live TV was, was pretty cool for us. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, all the work had a sense of, of, of hardcore user interaction. You're uploading a photo of yourself or, of, and or your friends, or you're, you're calling an 800 number and speaking into the phone and, and the, the site that you're interacting with does something with the recording of your voice. But you were, whatever the physical equivalent of, of interacting with something that's not physical is, you know, you were really doing something with it. It wasn't a passive experience. And, and we felt very strongly about that. And we worked on that stuff so much. The underlying technology ended up being, like, we knew how to build that kind of stuff. We knew how to connect to toll-free phone number APIs and connect back to a server in real time. And all that shit we figured out. And then the challenge was every project, how do we just increase that level of user experience to the point where when a person stopped engaging, they remembered they engaged and they shared out that engagement with, with other people. And then, you know, Wyatt and Kennedy also come com- completely different. I think every stereotype of Wyatt and Kennedy is probably true. And I mean that in a very good way. It's like, it is the greatest collection of creative minds that I've ever worked with, like, no offense to anyone else I've ever worked with, but this the folks at White Kennedy are brilliant and sort of like overall brilliant, right? It's not like there's one dude who's really good at task X. That one dude is really good at task A through Z. So mm-hmm. you know, it's a fascinating culture to kind of be thrown into the mix of and given these huge accounts. And it's like, okay, well, you guys just go figure it out. Just make cool shit. And it's all about making cool shit. One, one of the, the, the internal sayings that I think a lot of people in the industry know about Wyden is the work comes first. And that sounds like such a like HR style cliche phrase. It explains how the culture there works. The work really does come first. You know, it's a sort of place where 
the team comes up with an idea and it's a great idea and they, everyone feels really strongly about it. And the client says, that's great. We love it, but we can't really afford that. Every other agency is like, all right, well, we can start taking stuff out of this idea to see what you can afford. Mm-hmm. You know, Wyden is like, all right, well, you know, maybe we'll just do it for what you can afford because we feel so strongly about this idea. We just want to make it happen because really the work did come first. I mean, one, one thing is Wyden is independently owned, unlike a Euro. And there is no big publicly traded holding company. There is no Publicist or Omnicom or, or, or Habas worried about the bottom line. It really is just mm-hmm. about making interesting work. And also while you were at Wyden and Kennedy, you, you built a team, you oversaw this team, you grew this team. How did that process sort of come about? So Wyden is known for, I mean, television. It's, it's Wyden's bread and butter. No one else knows how to tell a story in 30 seconds than, than creative teams at Wyden and Kennedy. But with, after the, the Wyden Portland office created the, the, the Old Spice YouTube response campaign from a few years ago, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on, on the dude's name. People would write in comments or send tweets, and there would be instant uploads of YouTube videos with, with the character from the TV spot. Oh, Isaiah Mustafa, yes. that guy? Right, right. Yeah. After that work was so massively successful, I think folks in Wyden started thinking, okay, this proves that we know how to tell a story in any medium. Now we've got to make sure that we've got the right teams in our offices to be able to execute on these ideas. So I was brought into Wyden, New York to, to figure that out. You know, step one, how do we have an in-house technical team where, you know, to, to what I talked about when we first started chatting, where the technology folks are storytellers and they're not mm-hmm. just, you know, the people who make the ones and zeros. They're not just the nerds in the nerd basement. They understand that the technology that they're building is there to serve a, like a, a higher storytelling purpose. It's not just tech for tech's sake. And once we have that team, how do we integrate that team into an agency where there's been a process for making great work for 30 years? If it ain't broke, you know, like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, pretty big challenges for uh, an agency that's, again, been so clearly successful in doing things the way they've done it. It's kind of, kind of an interesting challenge. Part of the challenge was just finding technologists who would also consider themselves storytellers. And, you know, it, it was more about building technology because it's going to do something and not just because it was cool to build. Like, we're not going to build this thing in Node because Node is awesome. We're going to build it in Node because insert reasons here. But those reasons were connected to things other than just the tech guys thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. So, and this happened, I think, while you were at Widen and Kinder, maybe a little bit before, you started your own production shop called Oakley and Partners. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, how did you go about finding clients? How did you approach projects? Things like that. Yeah, when I when I when I left BBB and um, and I, I moved back to to New York, and the, you know, the the big reason was I thought it was time to jump in the ring and start a shop. And we did work for. For Disney, we did work for Google. I, throughout my career, have developed relationships with both with you know direct clients. I mean, Exxon was a client of mine at Euro, and then became a client of mine of, of Open Partners. But also, you start to form this network of people who work on the agency side, and then everyone scatters around and works at different agencies. And it's very nice to be able to reach into that network and grab some client work when when, when you need it. So that that helped. That was a huge help for getting work. Our tagline was creatively technical. This, this, again, this is a pattern, I guess, in my entire existence. How can we do things that have a creative sensibility but are technically sound? How can we build things that, that are technically rock solid, and even if they're coming from a technical place, but they exist to tell a story? And, you know, when I say tell a story or storytelling, I, I don't necessarily mean pie-in-the-sky, big brand thought storytelling. You know, you can tell a brand story with a great... Piece with a, a utility app with an iPad game, which is one of the things we did for, for, for Exxon and for, um, for, for Disney Interactive. It was also the time, I think, where I realized that what I'm not, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I, I learned what I'm really not good at. When you have, for the first time in your career, a client pull you aside and say, you know what? You need to hire an account team, Husani, because you are like the worst account person to ever exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for that tip. I, I will not be the guy negotiating monies and contracts, perhaps. Perhaps that's not my role. Talk to me about 
I guess, the New York City design scene as a whole? Because like you said, a lot of the work that you've done has been in and around New York. What is the design scene? Well, I guess design and development scene since you're kind of a, you're a coder as well. But what's that whole sort of atmosphere like? You've worked at some big companies, worked with some big clients. Tell me a little bit about that. It's very New York. You know, it's very, I don't mean that in, in the sort of bad type A cutthroat way. I mean that in the in the work ethic way and in the you're best defined by your last success. This is totally, you know, well, what have you done for me lately kind of a place. It's like, it's awesome that you designed and developed that thing three years ago. But what did you do last week? Um, right. you know, because things are changing so fast and, and you have no choice but to, but, to, but to keep up with that. You know, culture-wise, it's like, Everyone has worked with everyone else in some way. And this is, you know, like advertising specifically, yes, but sort of in a general internet-focused design development world, everybody knows each other. Every, everyone has, is, is either, you know, from, from, from my generation, we've been doing it since like the dot-com era, or, or they're relatively new, at least compared to those of us who are old now. <laughs> and it's interesting, though, because those two groups feel like they're split into, into, into two camps, at least here. There is the, the camp that, that still sees the, the difference between and the wall between creative and tech or, or, or design and development. And then there are all these new folks who are like, wall? What wall? I don't necessarily do it all. And like, you know, I can't go from writing code to hopping in, in Photoshop and, and really like crafting pixels, but I understand enough about both to be an expert in one and not make something that's ugly if you're a coder or, you know, not design something that's unbuildable if you're, if you're on, the, on the design side. It makes me feel hopeful for the future of this industry, especially here, that there are more and more people who understand that skill set diversity is what makes good work. Now, you've thrown out a lot of different terms here. You've talked about you yourself as a creative technology director. You talked about the people that you worked with at Wyden and Kennedy as technologists. Aside, I guess, you know, when you we're thinking about titles and things like that, how would a creative director differ from, say, a web designer or a web developer? Does a creative director operate on maybe a higher level and the designer and developer work on more granular levels? How does that break down? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, a, a, a CD or a creative director is figuring out, I keep referring to the, the overall brand story or the overall point of what, of what you're making. It's like you're, a CD is coming up and or approving from other folks that basic idea, you know, that like three sentence explanation, the feel, the, the underlying infrastructure of, of the idea. And there, there may be visuals associated with that. There might not be, you know, it all depends on, on, on what the output is at the end of the day. And then, you know, on the art director slash web designer level, it's like those are the folks who are cracking open Photoshop and figuring out how things really, really look. And then on, you know, on the, the development side, that stuff is in some instances passed off to, but in better instances, work hand in hand with web developer, whether that's front end or back end or, or mobile or whatever. You know, there are a hundred flavors of all this stuff. Figuring out how do we execute that visual idea with that visual idea having an underpinning of a larger idea that came from the, the creative direction side. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I was going to say, would it, would it seem safe to say that the creative director is kind of more the ideas person, whereas the web designer, art, web designer, art director, or web developer are more of like the builders and the makers? Is that yeah. a good way to put yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's like conceptual versus tactical. I got but, you. But with, you know, at the end of the day, the responsibility for both conceptual and tactical is on that creative director. If, if you know... If it doesn't, at least in, in, in my opinion, right, if, if you've got a great other people may differ, but you've got a great idea and the development of that idea didn't quite work. Yeah, sure. The, the devs needed to get their shit together a little bit more. But at the end of the day, it's on that creative director, which is why I think the stronger CDs have an understanding of what those tactical layers are throughout a project. You might not be able to hop into code, 
but you understand enough about how things work to be able to know whether you're going down a path towards success or failure. Right. So tell me about how you got your initial spark for coding. When did that start? So I am from second through fourth grade. I went to a private school in New Jersey called the Chad School. All, perhaps obvious by the name, people of color. We wore uniforms. Teachers were brother name and sister name. We sang the Black National Anthem every morning instead of the Star Spangled Banner kind of place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A huge formative experience in my life, I think. And there was a like computer class. And, and I, don't, I don't remember much of that, but I remember being in the class and realizing I get this. This is really easy for me. I don't even remember what, what this was, but whatever we were doing, it was like, I can feel that I can just hop into this area and I'm not struggling that much. You know, when you're a second grader, you don't really understand what any of that means. But mm-hmm. it was, there was no like mental pushback when I started getting in, in, involved and stuff at, at that age. And then I sort of, I begged and pleaded my mother for a computer for, a, I don't know, like a very, very, very long time. And, you know, this is, this is the 80s. You're not just, and, and I guess early 90s, you're not just um, popping 200 bucks down to get a computer for your kid. It's like, oh no, yeah. this, this ain't cheap. So right. uh, one Christmas, my Christmas gift, like the only Christmas gift that year, with my grandparents' help, was a Windows computer. And it was, I think it was 11, maybe 12. And it was the, you know, the, there was nothing else as important to me that entire year as this computer that sat in my bedroom as I was 12 years old. And I, I figured stuff out. And I was the kid who, you know, would take things apart and then put back mm-hmm. together and had pieces left over. And you'd be like, um, uh, there are like four screws and a circuit board. I don't know where those things are supposed to go. So let's just <laughs> plug it in and see what happens. Like, I can't count the times that I broke that first computer just like playing with stuff. And I mean software-wise. Like, mm-hmm. I was running an early version of, of DOS, and I deleted command.com. Not knowing. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, right. Like, I had no idea. I was like, <laughs> I, I got a 40-megabyte hard drive here. I got to delete some files. What's this autoexec.bat? What's this command.com? <laughs> Let me just delete it and see what happens. <laughs> so within two weeks, I had a brick sitting on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I've learned a little bit since then, although my approach to, to problem solving is probably the same way, which is just like jump in and screw around and see if what you do makes any kind of sense at the end of the day. Now, you started your, your very first business as a teenager, <laughs> DigiSync Technologies. Tell me what that was about. So in pre-mass market internet days, you know, thinking of a, of a network was, was like there was a network in an office. There was a network in a school. I ended up getting some skill in in that area. One, because I'd spent so much time breaking my own computer, I figured out how to like fix things when other people broke them, but broke them less intentionally, apparently, than I did. <laughs> and um, I interned with the state of New Jersey. Uh, my mom was a, a social worker with the state, and, and I, I met people through that, you know, folks who were IT people for, this, for the state of New Jersey, and, and I got a summer internship. You know, running Ethernet cable in new office buildings and working on hubs and routers and, and all, the, all that fun IT stuff. And, and I thought, hey, well, I know how to do that. I, I could, I'm not really getting an allowance here. Like, I, I want to go buy the new Pearl Jam CD. I need to make some money. I'm going to start a company. So a, a friend of mine and I said, all right, well, let's, like, let's do this. We, we all know people in the little town that we grew up in. We knew offices and folks who... Uh, needed computer assistance in some way. So let's just start charging them and going in and doing it. And, you know, the first couple of clients were clearly folks who knew us. So they weren't freaked out by some 15-year-old kid, you know, walking in saying, all right, I'm, I'm going to solve your problems and here's, my, here's, a, here's the invoice. But I think hopefully anyway, we, we started to get a little bit of a reputation as, oh, yeah, th- those kids actually know what they're doing. This is not some, like, high school childish thing. Like, they're... They're pretty good. After a while, my, my, my friend got other interests and left, and it was kind of just me doing stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it still worked. After a while, we had, for, look, for a 15-year-old, billable time was good, and the number of clients were good. So there was really no complaining. <laughs> and I think I learned a lot. You know, I, I learned, apparently I didn't learn how to be an account person, but I learned how to, <laughs> 
how to solve problems that were not my personal problems. You know what I mean? It's like you're presented with a client problem and, and you, you have to figure out how to solve it in a way that's appropriate for the client and for the client's business, which might be diametrically opposed to how you would solve the problem if it were your company's problem. I got you. Are you addicted to founding companies? <laughs> you know, I enjoy the beginning. I enjoy having the kernel of an idea and figuring out how to make that idea happen. I find that really, really interesting. I also, you know, I'm a strong believer in the more resources you have, the less, I'm sorry, the more resources you have, the less shitty, the more shitty your work's going to be. So there's something compelling about doing the startup thing when you've got like 20 bucks in a dream. You get real necessity is the mother of invention on everybody. And, and I think that's when, that's when magic can happen. The best projects that I've been on, and, and in my opinion, the most interesting startup experiences I've had have been when there were the very low budgets, very little funding, just a couple of folks sitting in a room with some beer and a whiteboard and like figuring stuff out. I really, really like that early stage stuff. Mm-hmm. So speaking of what you were talking about just now, you're a black man in technology that has had some pretty high ranking roles. You started your own companies. You've worked with big brands. What is kind of your opinion about diversity in this industry? Because there, there seems to always be, almost at this point, I think it's a weekly conversation revolving around maybe gender diversity or racial diversity. And there's all these conflicts and snafus and people are saying the wrong shit. And it's just, there's all this stuff that seems to happen that doesn't seem to move the industry forward as a whole. What do you think we can do to try to, I guess, get over all of that? You know, I thought that in the beginning... Of my career, I got very used to, to, to being the only one or, you know, there's three of us in a thousand-person organization, and I mm-hmm. get used to it very quickly. But I used to think, all right, well, you know, as we all move forward into the future, perhaps, obviously very naive of me to think, um, oh, this will change. I mean, the more, more folks will come in more. There'll be a developed pipeline, and not necessarily a consciously developed pipeline, but, you know, more and more people of color will get into this stuff on their own. And then they'll want to do it professionally, and then everyone will hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And clearly, <laughs> that didn't happen. Right. And, you know, I think technical folks, God, I'm going to be so stereotypical here, but whatever. Go ahead. You know, with like the leaning towards market-based solutions and the leaning towards being a libertarian, you know, the, the leaning toward, oh, well, the problem will, will, will solve itself, or the, the structure that we create will just solve the problem with technologists feeling that a little more perhaps because of what we've spent our careers doing there doesn't seem to be an understanding that nah guys because it's guys to, mm-hmm. to change the type of people who do this stuff there need to be like conscious effort made and like there are tactical things that society needs to do that the overall tech and design industry needs to do yeah pipeline's important obviously but what happens after you get folks through the pipeline, and their name is Husani or Rakim, and you throw their resume out because a, a less obviously person of color name is is in the stack of resumes. You know, it's like, mm. I don't know why we think as insiders in this field that the bullshit, either very obvious or underlying racism in every other industry in this country doesn't apply to us. Or does Well, that's because technology is a meritocracy. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, I was on your code, man. Can you code? Right. We can just make an algorithm to solve this problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's like part of me, I almost understand why people would think that way because, mm-hmm. again, of what we do. It's like when, when you're sitting at a computer, you're writing your code, you're making your shit. It's all about you and what you're doing. And, and when you're working with other people... You're, you know, you're hopping on the GitHub and, and pulling someone's open source code down to apply to your own project. You're not thinking, that code came from a black woman. I'm not going to download that code. Right. But, but folks who perhaps haven't experienced certain things in their lives, you know, it's easy for them to dismiss the thoughts of those of us who have experienced it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, you're overreacting. Or, oh, that doesn't really happen. Well, how the hell do you know? <laughs> like, right. I'm telling you. 
from the inside that there are problems A, B, C, D, and E. We can argue till we're blue in the face over the solutions to those problems, but we, we got to agree that the problem exists, and we haven't gotten to that agreement point yet, not 100%. How do you think we can start to get there? That is a very good question, and I wish I knew an answer. There are organizations that are trying And when I say this field, I mean whatever the hell that means. It's like design, it's advertising, it's media, it's technology, it's it's, Mm -hmm. this new stuff, whatever that is. New media, so to speak. Yeah, and you can't see me, but I'm doing finger quotes here. It's not really new anymore. I was doing finger quotes too, actually. There you go. You know, there are groups like like, like AdColor, for example, Mm -hmm. whose, you know, their mission is to celebrate and push for diversity in all its forms, so color, gender, or sexual orientation, all diversity as a whole, specifically in the advertising, marketing, PR, and, and media media sides. I, I'm not aware of, of any comparable organization that's sort of more strictly on the design and or, and or development side. It, mm-hmm. it feels like everyone is, is, is kind of scattered. That's a good way to put you it. You know, and I understand why they're they're scattered. Um, I, I hope that we have access to... The internet is the third most important invention in the history of our species. You know, fire, the wheel... Okay, fourth. Fire, the wheel, <laughs> writing, and the internet. The, the ability to connect with like-minded people 24 hours a day from wherever you are, wherever they are, should eventually mean, maybe this is my being naive again, that those scattered groups can put their scatteredness and sort of insidery bullshit aside and join up and figure out how to solve those problems. And, and how to, con- how to uh, you know, I was going to say how to convince everyone else that the problems exist, but as I age, I give less of a shit about what the folks who don't think there's a problem think. Mm-hmm. It's like, how about you just get out of the way and let us solve this problem if you're not going to think that it actually exists? Like climate change. Right, right. Have you had any mentors that have sort of helped you out along your your journey to where you are now? Yeah, I've, I've had a couple, and they've. I'm thinking of, of you know two, two folks in in particular, and they you know they they started out as I directly reported to them at various places that I that, that I've worked, mm-hmm. but the relationship kind of grew from I'm your boss to I'm your boss and which was which was super nice. Those relationships were were really important. Even to, to this day, I kind of think I put myself in their shoes and I'm in a tough situation and try to guess at what they would do and then do my probably terrible version of them. <laughs> super, <laughs> super important, super important to me. How do you keep motivated and inspired with the work that you do? You know, sometimes it's really difficult <laughs> when you're, when it's, I'll put it this way, like the, the past two weeks, I'm, I'm working on a couple of things right now and I have maybe slept an average of four hours a night for the past mm-hmm. couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm on the edge of, like, giggly exhaustion over here. Mm-hmm. But even in the midst of that, I know what my end goal is on these projects. Right. And that kind of goes for, for anything I'm working on, you know, whether, whether that end goal is the big end goal for the big brand and we get our shit on TV and a million users, that's awesome. But it's also cool when I figure out how to solve some relatively minor technical problem and I feel like I am the man. You know, that feeling of of accomplishment at the end and and the rush that you have when strangers interact with your work is what makes all of it worthwhile. Who has offered you some of the most useful career advice and what was that advice? So I worked for for a guy at uh, at EDB named Andrew Walter agency guy, one, one of the people I'd consider a, a, a mentor to your previous question. He was a, a senior producer, project manager, director of production type guy, still in the industry, very active in the industry. And mm-hmm. uh, we had a, a couple of scary client situations at some point on, on, on some projects. And I, I was, due to my lack of account person skill, was struggling <laughs> to, to figure out how to, how to solve those problems. And, and he said to me, listen, you know, what you've got to do in these situations is stop listening to what the client says that they want. They don't want that project launched in two weeks. They want to get a thumbs up from their boss, or they really want to be able to put money down on their new house. 
or they just want to be able to go to sleep at night because they've been awake for two weeks because they have a newborn baby and has been crying all the time. There is always a reason behind what you might think of as a massive roadblock. The roadblock doesn't necessarily exist just to screw with you. Try to figure out why that roadblock exists and couch your solution. Put out your solution and solve the real problem while solving the roadblock. Even, you know, even if your solution is more focused towards the roadblock, keep in mind why that roadblock existed in the first place and try to figure out ways to satisfy that need. You know, it was very tactical advice on dealing with difficult clients, but I tended to kind of use that whenever I'm in difficult situations career-wise. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why you got into that massive fight with that person you work with. It's not necessarily what you were fighting over. Figure that out and you figure out how to move forward after that. Right. So I'm going to flip that question then. What advice would you give to someone that let's say they're just starting out, we'll say in the in the tech field, they're just starting out. What advice would you give to them? Be confident in your work and at the same time, and it sounds so trite, but it's so it's so true. Asking questions is not the worst thing to do. <laughs> you know, it's not as if developers anyway have a great reputation for being really good at communication with other people. Oh. <laughs> You know, I include myself in that. But asking questions about a task until you are crystal clear as to not only what that task means, but why you're doing it and how you're going to do it and how it fits with everything else that's going on in, on any given project or in any mm-hmm. scenario is critical. Too many times have I have I worked with with many more junior people, uh, and you know, you, you give them the the two sentence version of what you want done, and like, okay, yeah, got it. And they go off and they spend two weeks crafting it and they have questions and they don't want to ask because they don't look mm. stupid or uninformed or like they're not mm. good enough and they should know the answer to that question. The person who gives you that task might not be expecting you to know the answers. They might not know the answers. The more you talk about this stuff and the more you're like, hey, actually, I have no idea what the hell you just told me to do. Could you explain it to me? Mm-hmm. If the person you're asking that question to, you know, is like angered or offended by that or has a problem with that. That problem is on them, not on you. You've got to be able to fully understand what the, the tasks that you're doing because it's important. Because no matter how junior you are, every contribution to a company or a campaign or a project or a product is super important. One weak link in that chain and it all falls to shit. So you might as well do everything you can to make sure that what you're doing is needed and fits in well with what everybody else is doing. You shouldn't be afraid of looking stupid. Yeah, I'll even I'll add a corollary to that, and I'll aim this specifically towards men. Please ask questions. <laughs> Please ask questions. I mean, I've worked on teams, I've built teams, I have a, a current team now, and the thing that I've found that has been sort of the linking thread between all of them is that the men do not ask questions when they get stuck on something. I don't know if it's sort of this this old school notion of, you know, like, oh, the man doesn't ask for directions, that kind of thing. Right. Please ask questions. Ask questions, really, really. Like, you know, it's okay to ask. It's not just okay. It's, it's okay to ask questions. Sh- and I'm not saying this in, like, some sort of a, a chauvinistic or misogynistic sort of way, but all the women that I've worked with are not afraid to ask questions yep. if they get stuck on something. They will ask questions. They will drill down until they understand it, and then they'll produce something that is close to what I'm looking for because they ask questions. Whereas the men that I've worked with do not ask questions. And then they present something and it's like, well, this is, what is this? And they said, oh, well, I had questions about blank. Well, why didn't you ask me? I've even encountered that with my students. Like, ask questions. Definitely ask questions. Yeah, and it's like, you know, that goes for, for the folks starting out and then the junior folks, but it goes, for, it goes for everyone. I get given a task. Trust me, I'm going to ask some questions. You know, it's like if, if if you don't, how can you, as you're working, you know, you do that double check in your head? Is this right? Is this right? How can you do that without fully understanding the sandbox you're playing in? Because you did, because you didn't ask a question. Ask, open your mouth and ask a question. Right. Is there anyone or anything that might have stopped you from realizing your full potential? You know, I think. I got lucky in so many areas and in so many ways. You know, I, w- I was lucky enough to be raised right. Honestly, <laughs> step one. I was lucky enough to have a support system as a child, both sort of family-based and, and the town I grew up in. 
Um, I was lucky enough to, to be given a shot when I first got into this professionally. And I, I look back at that stuff and I see, oh, you know, at any given point, things could have just completely taken a turn. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they didn't. Now, I know I can say that from this perch. I want to think that regardless of what life threw at me, I'd be able to kind of muster on through, but I, I don't know. It's easy to say that when you're here. I don't know if I would yeah. say the same thing when I was 18. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Exactly. Now, you've got numerous accolades and awards under your belt, and now you're sort of right now back doing your own thing as a freelance creative technology director. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? So w- when I was in the middle of the the dot-com craziness, sorry, the, the, the first dot-com craziness, I mean, I was young. It was my first time in the workforce. I didn't quite understand that the ridiculousness of that era was not how it was always going to be forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. So I just assumed, all right, well, if I continue on the path I'm on now, I'm retiring at 35. Like, <laughs> this is going to be great. This is what life is. Right. Oh, shit, okay. Yeah, well, I'm 34 now. Um, <laughs> not retiring next year. But, um, <laughs> again, how, how, how things change over a 15-year period of... of Shit, I suppose. So, you know, I don't know. I, in a way, yes. In a way, I always wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm actually sort of shocked at how I've been an employee a lot because I'm, like, not that guy. I don't just disdain authority. I, like, giggle at it and make funny signs about it. Like, it's very difficult for me to be in, in, like, a normal, like, org chart and all that kind of thing. I just, I don't... But you've kind of been that authority, though, in some places. Yeah, yeah, and which was, which was a very interesting turn for me. And when you're the anti-authority guy and suddenly become the authority, you can either learn how to be the authority and still keep some of the, you know, a healthy disdain for even yourself... Or you mm-hmm. become this autocratic ruler who, you know, leaves the team with an iron fist, pretending to be Steve Jobs, and that really never works out well for anybody. <laughs> Steve Jobs. Um, but, you know, to, to answer your question, where I'm at right now, I think, surprises me a little bit, and not in a bad way at all. I'm mm-hmm. really proud of the work I've done. I'm proud of the work I'm doing. I'm excited about the work I'm doing and, and, and the, the stuff in the future that I, that I want to do and, and plan on doing. And on the freelance side, it's nice to have, after so much agency life, it's really nice to have the freedom to, to, to choose what I work on and who I work for. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk more about you personally, kind of, you know, a little bit outside of work, so to speak. Do you have any plans for this summer? Work. Work? <laughs> yeah, un- uh, I was going to say unfortunate, but that, that's kind of a lie. Um, I think it's fortunate because I'm really having fun with what I'm working on right now. But this summer is definitely like work, work, work. It's really funny. I um, When I was at Wyden and Kennedy, I, I was on an airplane going somewhere like once a week. I got enough frequent flyer miles to like bump me up a bunch of levels. But mm-hmm. since leaving, I've been, I've been concentrating so much on, on, on what I've been, I mean, the work I'm doing. And it's all kind of like mostly local clients and local things. I haven't flown very much. So I'm in danger of losing my awesome frequent flyer privileges. Oh, you got to go somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You fly somewhere. Exactly. So I'm thinking like post-summer, like when the weather starts to get crappy here, would be the perfect time for me to be somewhere where there is sand and water and heat and drinks with little umbrellas in them. There you go. What are some of the local, you say you're working with some local clients and some other projects. Can you talk any bit about that? Yeah, I just wrapped up, well, just I mean, a couple of months ago, I, I worked with a production shop and a creative agency building out um, a site for uh, New York City's new soccer team. Uh, and it's soccer, not football. Sorry, that's just... I will not call it football. <laughs> no, it's soccer. I'm an American, it's soccer. I deal with it. <laughs> and, you know, I worked on this project for a while. I actually was a hands-on coder on this thing. I'm the primary dev. Doing some really cool HTML5 canvas stuff was, was, was super exciting. That, that, that launched a little while ago. And it was, you know, it's New York City. It's local-based. The agencies were here. I've got some, some work I'm doing with, uh, with a shop down in Florida. I'm doing some consulting with some other folks. One thing I can't talk too much about, but I'm super excited about, I'm working with a, a financial services startup, and they're located here in the city, although they're in, they're in Manhattan, launching 
probably later this year. Super, super cool. I think from from like a brand perspective, I'm I'm, I'm helping build out some of the the behind the scenes technology, which is is super fun. It's nice now to be able to be more hands on than perhaps I've been in the in the recent past as a director. You know, we talked about how the the, the structure of a team lies, and you know, the creative director is sort of at the top and you know, overarching ideas and such. It's nice that I'm doing that right now, but I'm also able to get my hands dirty and stuff as much as I want, which is pretty fun. If you weren't doing, I guess, the work that you're doing now, what do you think it is that you would be doing? So I spent a, a good portion of my childhood studying music. Okay. So uh, clarinet, alto sax, conducting, composing, that was going to be my my thing. IT company as a teenager aside, music was my other passion. I'd probably be doing that. The shift happened when I, you know, my first professional gig, um, you know, an internship at agency.com. And I, I think now if I hadn't gotten that, it would have been, well, all right, it's time to start doing some auditions. I'm either going to end up in, so, you know, in some somebody's regional orchestra or, or playing in pit bands on Broadway or something. I'd, I'd most likely be doing that. I'd like to hope I'd be doing that. What music are you listening to these days? What music am I not listening to is probably a, a better question. I like <laughs> music is structure to me, and I'm fascinated by different genres and how the underlying structure expresses itself in different genres to tell different stories. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, it's sort of, I guess, an underlying metaphor for my life, but... <laughs> I'm listening to a, a lot. I to the point where whenever I use Skype, which is you know 24 hours a day, I'm private sessioning because otherwise mm-hmm. it looks as if what I'm playing is like a bug because I'm skipping around genres. I'm going from like Green Day to friggin' Snoop. Like it's just it's it's so all over the place, and, and very mm-hmm. little of it is current. Very little of it is was was made or talked about recently. It's very like all over the place. old school. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I like what I'm doing now, and I think that I've explored the technology side of things like a whole a whole hell of a lot. And if I am that, that split right now between creative and technology, I'm starting to look towards more the creative side and with, with still a technology underpinning, but you know, how do you tell stories and, and how can I worry a little bit less about the execution and a little more about the actual story being told? Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting into some filmmaking, some like web shorts and web series types of things, getting a little bit more onto the storytelling side is what I hope to be doing in the in the relative near future. So just kind of branching out a little bit from uh, from what you're doing now. Yeah, and I, I say that, but in a year, some interesting new technology will appear out of nowhere and I'll like, oh my God, I've got to get into that a little bit. And then like Swift. Oh, Swift. (laughs) Swift. Let's just change everything that you know about something and go. Good times. Thanks, Apple. (laughs) (laughs) So just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? So I am Husani Oakley on Twitter. My tweets tend to be, like a random stream of consciousness with the occasional helpful link or two <laughs> on Husani.com on the web. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a Tumblr, so again, it's very stream of consciousness, cool design, cool tech stuff. I am Husani Oakley on Facebook. I'm around. There are a bunch of other Husanis on social media, by the way. One who works in advertising, which makes me, it creeped me out at first. We both were at Euro. He is a freelance art director and me as director of tech at the same time. And I've lived my entire life hearing the word Husani, and I'm the only one who looks. Is, is that Husani Barnwell? Yes. <laughs> yes. It was really Small confusing. world. It was really confusing being in the same hallway and hearing someone say Husani, and two people turn around. What the hell? No, 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 no. I'm Husani. You're not Husani. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to say, just personally, this has been a very enlightening and great interview. For those that are not listening, Husani and I have known each other for several years i have followed his career so the fact that i'm able to to really talk with you and and interview you about the work you've done has just been a real real pleasure so thank you so much i appreciate thank you very it very much I, this this was a lot of fun i'm i'm, I'm glad we did this And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Husani Oakley and thanks to you for listening. 
Don't forget to check out MailChimp. They reign supreme when it comes to email marketing, and it's the service provider of choice for thousands of designers and small businesses all over the world. Visit them at MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account. Now we're kicking off the countdown to our 50th episode with a contest, and best of all, it's free to enter. Just leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, then send your iTunes or Stitcher name to mail at revisionpath.com so we can verify your review. We'll choose one reviewer at random, and they'll win a $50 gift card to Amazon.com. We'll have some more details about this contest on the blog, so make sure you head over there for more information. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like these interviews and the other content that we're providing, then help keep this thing going. Just head over to revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level and show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.